in our study of John's Gospel in this series of messages that we've entitled The Life, Love, and, and Truth of Jesus Christ. And you'll see throughout uh, the moving through this Gospel that uh, each one of these things, all these things are Jesus. He is uh, obviously had a, he was a historical being who had a life of example, but uh, in him is love and truth, grace, and all these things will be evident. Uh, and today, one of the things that really is going to be evident, hopefully, is this aspect of his truth as we talk about the authority of Jesus Christ. And as you're heading to John chapter 5, I just kind of want to ask a rhetorical question to start with, and that is this. Why is it so important that we recognize Jesus as the authority in our life at all? Um, Why must He be the main, sole authority for everything about us? Why is it so important that Jesus be the authority of Scripture and the authority of worship? Why is it so important that Jesus be the authority of all created things? Part of it has to do with recognizing history, I think. Hostility towards the church. Early on, Pharisees and many Jews had names for Jesus that were not significant or or, um, in recognition of His authority. They called Him a Samaritan They called him demon-possessed. They said that he was insane. They said that Jesus was a man of illegitimate birth. Later on, Jewish successors called him, quote, an evil magician. Liberal skeptics later on went on to call him merely a man. They said things like, well, this Jesus, you know, he's a good example for faith, but he's not an object of our faith. Later still, Jesus has been called a political revolutionary. Jesus today has been called a countercultural crusader, a man of social justice. He's been called many things that lack the authority of who he really is. And why this is important is that we see churches crumbling and imploding because they have failed or they have failed to continue to recognize who Jesus really is as the sovereign God, creator of heaven and earth, and the ruler of your life and of my life. If we don't recognize Jesus as that, not only will our churches crumble, but your personal life and faith and understanding of Scripture will crumble as well. This morning I had the privilege to teach the youth, and one of the things we talked about, the main thing we talked about was the the non-negotiables of Christian faith, because someday they're going to be put in a position where they're going to go away to college. They're not going to have mom and dad to tell them what to do, how to pick a church, and then they're going to be young adults, single adults, married adults. They're going to be raised in their own families. They're going to know how and what are the most important things when it comes to picking a church. So we talked about the non-negotiables of faith. Because there are a lot of churches out there that believe a lot of different things. And some things are preferences. You know, hymns, contemporary songs, blended worship, smoke machines, lights, you know, industrial feel, pews, chairs. All those things are preferential things, but there are non-negotiables that dictate whether a place is actually even a church or not a church. So, if we don't hold Jesus as the authority 
in our life as the authority of Scripture, things will begin to quickly crumble. And our churches have been suffering from this from the inside out for millennia. In the 4th century, there was a heresy. It was called Arianism. If you're a student of church history, you're probably familiar with it. It was this teaching that Jesus was um, not eternal, but that He was a begotten being. He was something that was created by God. You say, well, you know, whatever, you know, semantics. No, this is a very important thing. The church was so concerned about this that they held a a council. Maybe you've heard of the Council of Nicaea. They gathered together um, to refute Arianism and to affirm that Jesus Christ is God, is the same as the Eternal Father and the Holy Spirit. And that we must not settle for any other position of Christ in our life other than the sovereign, eternal authority in our lives. Arianism was saying that in in essence, Jesus was not the eternal God. Today, just to show that Ecclesiastes is right and that there is nothing new under the sun, today this heresy is called Mormonism. They believe the same thing. So when a Mormon refers to going to church, they're not really going to church. They're going to a place where they worship what they believe, but it's not the church, scripturally speaking, because they don't worship Jesus Christ as the authority, as the eternal sovereign ruler of the universe, as we do here. So the Council of Nicaea adopted a creed to kind of debunk this heresy in the 4th century. And we still see doubters today of Jesus' position, but let me read to you the Nicene Creed. It'll probably sound familiar to you, but what they say is, is so important. And now mind you, this is in the 4th century, only 400 years plus since the death of Christ, and already they're battling this big time. And this is what the church fathers got together, and this is what they said. In unison, they said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of the Father, uh, very God of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us, men for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Side note, when they say I believe in the Catholic Church, they're not talking about the Catholic Church that you're thinking about today. They're talking about Catholic small c, which means universal. 
So they believe in the one church, true church of Jesus Christ and that there is no other. That's what they're saying. Just to kind of, as we open here, I wanted to kind of illustrate why this is so important for our churches today. That we believe this still today. Um, we're all friends with people on Facebook who we don't agree with. Or we're all friends with people on Facebook who are, we would say, you know, like lost in the woods or maybe out to lunch. And I have some of those too. So I have one friend that was uh, kind of adamantly not interested in church, had some weird beliefs historically for decades. Um, since I knew them as a, a young man. So when I saw that they were posting pictures of church events, I started to get really curious. I'm like, man, I wonder what this church is. Like, what kind of church would actually... And I was hoping and praying that maybe it was a church that was preaching the gospel and, and uh, that she had been born again and that she was now in a healthy place, but I had my doubts. And then when I went to that church's website... Uh, I realized that it was just the opposite. It was uh, a church that had um, given up on the authority of Christ and had become a church of many things. And I wanted to read with you, share with you uh, what was on their website as far as, you know, every church has a, a page that's about us, and this about us page talks about what they believe. And this all comes back to the authority of Christ. Listen to what they say about themselves and their church. Together, we seek meaning in life's mystery, strengths for its challenges, and grace for the journey. We take the Bible seriously, but not literally, as we seek God and endeavor to follow the teachings of Christ. You can't reconcile those two, by the way. You can't seek to follow the teachings of Christ and not take the Bible literally. We worship and serve God in the presence of a welcoming spiritual community that's open to differing beliefs. We seek to develop a deeper, more rewarding personal relationship with God. Receive support and encouragement during times when you need spiritual nourishment or direction. And we seek to serve others in our community and around the world who are in need of our resources, times, talent, talents, and compassion. Uh, and then a little bit later, they go on to say, our roots go back to the pilgrims and the Puritans and the birth of our country. Our founders believed in each person's direct relationship with God and in the authority of the local congregation to shape church decisions and activities. Today, we are part of a larger denominational community, the United Church of Christ, but we still believe in the practice of these same principles. And then right after that is a link on their webpage as far as what they believe, and it's, it's an article, Five Things Christians Can Learn from Buddhism. One of which, at the very top of the list, was that Jesus went through a period of self-enlightenment just like Buddha did. They're all over the map. Um, I mean, it is funny, but it's not funny because people are going here and they're getting their spiritual depth. It might be one of these places where they do the blessings of the animals, I'm not sure. And later on in the 1980s and 90s, there was this movement called the Jesus Seminar, if you've ever heard of it. Weirdest thing. What they did was, they decided that they were going to take the five Gospels, and they, you heard that right, they were going to take the five Gospels, 
because the Gospel of Thomas was valid to them as well. And they were going to pool hundreds of so-called experts on the statements of Jesus in those five Gospels. And they were going to take a, they were going to take the democratic approach to what's true and what's not true. So they decided to pool their experts and take a vote on which things were really true that Jesus said and taught and which things were suspect and which things were adamantly not true. And they were going to take the, the results of all those votes and they were going to form their own beliefs based upon the votes. So in in essence, what they're doing is they're taking the authority of Jesus and the Scriptures and they're placing them in the hands of man. (laughs) You want to hear what they came up with? This is from Robert Funk, who was one of the founders of the Jesus Seminar. And at at a keynote address in 1994 to his Jesus Seminar um, fellows, he pointed out these six things about what they had recognized as true. First, they said, Jesus did not ask us to believe that his death was a blood sacrifice and that he was going to die for our sins. Jesus did not ask us to believe that he was the Messiah. He certainly never suggested that he was the second person of the Trinity. In fact, he rarely referred to himself at all. Jesus did not call upon people to repent or fast or observe the Sabbath. He did not threaten with hell or promise heaven. Jesus did not ask us to believe that he would be raised from the dead. Jesus did not ask us to believe that he was born of a virgin. And Jesus did not regard the scripture as infallible or even inspired. Well, of course he didn't, because then you couldn't make up your own beliefs that you just voted on. I'm only giving you these ridiculous illustrations only to point out that since the early days of the church, until this day and age that you live in and the neighbors that surround you, the world is continually seeking ways to bring Christ down to our level. They want Christ to be somebody that they can relate to, be buddies with, maybe pick up some good life application tips, but they don't want Jesus who is the authority over their life and over their church. Something's we do as a church is not because it's easy and not because it's comfortable. We just do it because it best reflects the authority of Christ. So what I want to give you this morning is just three, three points as we go through John chapter 5. And I want to ask the question, what does the authority of Christ look like? What does the authority of Christ look like? Because Jesus touches on this in John chapter 5. Let's pick up in verse 17. Obviously, Jesus is getting a... The heat is beginning to really ramp up on him, especially from the Pharisees, teachers of the law, the leading Jews in his day and age. And in verse 17, we read this, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His His voice and come out those who have done um, good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of whom Him who sent me. So, stop there for a second. The first thing we learn about the authority of Christ and what it looks like is this. He, being Jesus, is equal with the Father. He's equal with the Father. You say, well, I, that, that, isn't that given? I mean, isn't that, I'm in church this morning, isn't that given that I believe that? And I would say, we can't hear it enough. Because when we stop preaching it, when we stop hearing it, and we stop dwelling upon it, is when we stop seeing Jesus as equal with the Father. This is why the Jews hated Him. They hated Him. Jesus is saying to them, I'm the Son of God and my Father is showing me everything that He's doing. Everything that He's doing, I'm in on everything that the Father is doing. So tightly that we are one and the same. And the issue here at hand is the Sabbath. The Jews are ticked. Like that that Jesus would do acts of mercy and compassion and healing on the Sabbath just bugs them. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that I, I think Jesus obviously healed, he could have healed that man at the pool of Bethesda on any day of the week that he chose. He chose Saturday. He chose the Sabbath. Why? Because it's a thumb in the eye of those who think they hold the market on the law. And Jesus is saying, since God does work on the Sabbath, Now calm down a second before you think that I'm speaking heresy here. God rested on the seventh day, did He not? In the creation account, yes. Why? Because He had to? No. Because He gave us an example of Sabbath rest. Does God stop working? Is God not doing anything today? No, of course not. God is speaking. God is working. God is healing. God is redeeming. God is restoring, God is creating, God is enjoying, God is uh, all those things here, now, today. And Jesus is saying, I'm simply doing the work of my Father. I heal this man because God works on the Sabbath. God heals on the Sabbath. To the Jews, there's no way around what Jesus just said. You're telling me that you're God. That's what they just heard. You're working on the Sabbath because you're God? And Jesus is affirming this. Yes. And note how Jesus prefaces this. He says, the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. 
Now, in the New Testament, a lot of times we associate the word love with the word agape or agapeo, which is uh, sort of an unconditional love. That's not the word that Jesus uses here, though. When he says the Father loves the Son, he uses the Greek word phileo. This is a warm, deep love of affection. This isn't a uh, contractual sort of love. This is the kind of affectionate love that only a father could have for his son. So deep, so loving, kindred love. And he says Jesus, it says that Jesus is doing everything the Father is doing. And it says that the Father has entrusted, listen to this, everything to him. Everything. How can God the Father entrust everything to someone who is not God? It's impossible. And that's what Jesus said. He's telling the Jews, look, not only am I doing the work of the Father on the Sabbath, and that's all cool, but he's given me everything. He's entrusted everything to me. We read in Matthew 11, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Everything, all things, have been handed over to me by my Father. There is not one thing in life that Jesus does not have authority over. And the only way you can carry that authority is if you are God. And we're floored when he says, even greater things than these will you see. Think about the prospect of that. But it's true. Oh, you're going to see me feed thousands. Oh, you're going to see me heal thousands. You're going to see me control nature. You're going to see me raise the dead. You are going to see me create people anew. You are going to see me rise from the dead of my own power. Side note. Again, to blow our minds even more, Jesus not only said greater things would those people there see him do, but once he's gone in John um, 14 or John 14, greater things will we do in his name than he's done on this earth. I mean, that should just juice us as a church. If if you are sitting here and you think I'm too frail, I'm too overscheduled, I'm too tired, I, I can't get I can't get my mind around, you know, just making sense of my own daily life. And yet God is there on His throne saying, yeah, yeah, but I've made the Holy Spirit available to you, church. And I promise you that greater things than anything that I've done on earth, you're going to do. I've given you my very Spirit to do these things. I mean, we're talking about sheer numbers of things where Jesus was a part of making hundreds of lives new while He was on earth. The church had seen itself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, make millions of lives anew through God's working in them. 
Because that's the church that submits to the authority of Christ, is the church that is available to see God do those great works through them. And in these statements, what I love is it's, it's so easy to see Jesus setting Himself up and clearly showing Himself as God, but yet you clearly see the role of obedience that He's playing as well. And that's significant. In um, Philippians 2.6, we're told by the Apostle Paul about Jesus. He said, though He was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So even though Jesus Christ was fully God, He was content to lay that down in order that He might accomplish the will of the Father, which is the salvation of mankind, the redemption of those who would trust in Him. Even in the title that He used more than any other title, He called Himself the Son of Man more than anything else. We see both authority and obedience. The obedience aspect in the sense that the Son of Man is one who is man. I mean, one who identifies with the flesh of mankind. One who humbled himself to put on flesh in order to serve you and I. But in the book of Daniel, we see the Son of Man as a title of authority. Daniel is having a vision in chapter 7. And in his vision, he said this, beginning in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Is that not cool? So Jesus uses the Son of Man to identify with you and I, and Jesus uses the Son of Man to inform everybody that Daniel was right. The Son of Man did come, and God the Father gave Him authority over everything. That's why I can say with confidence that if a church does not worship with Jesus Christ at the center of it, it's not acceptable worship to God. Whatever other churches are going and worshiping or places that call themselves churches, whatever they're doing this morning, if it's not centered around the Gospel of Jesus Christ and Him as the authority over heaven and earth, you, that's not a proper view of God. That's, in, that's a faulted or um, failing view of God and who He is. There is no God apart from the Trinity. What else does Jesus' authority look like? Well, from this text we just read, we also can say this. He holds all power over life and death. Not only is He equal with the Father, but He holds all power over life and death. We read from this text clearly that eternal life is in His Word. Eternal life is in His Word. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Catch that. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then later he said, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
There's something about the words of Jesus Christ that are significant, necessary to salvation. We must believe in the words of Christ, and in believing in the words of Christ, it means that we must believe in the authority of Christ. If there's, if there's one, if you just boil it down to one key marker or key identifying factor of what makes a person sovereign deity, would it not be the power over life and death? And yet Jesus says, without a shadow of a doubt, there is no life apart from me. Consider John 11. A little bit later, as Jesus returns to Bethany and he encounters Mary and Martha and learns of the death of his good friend Lazarus, he says to his sister, he says, who's grieving, I mean just broken, she says, if you were just here, if you were just here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I did this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, them, unbind him and let him go. Listen to this. Jesus has so much authority that with a word, dead men must obey him. As will you someday. Someday, at the sound of his voice, you will rise again. If you are in Christ, you will rise again. And if that's not good enough, He will take the broken flesh and dust of the ground and He will form for you a new body. A physical body. That's the kind of authority that Christ has. And why? Why did He pray at Lazarus' tomb? Why did He do this? So that others may see firsthand the glory of God and that they may believe that Christ was sent by God. All life is in Him. There is no life outside of Christ. Listen to these verses. It just kind of affirms this. Um, in John 1.4, we read this uh, a few weeks ago, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, we're told, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was His plan from before the beginning of time to show us His grace through Christ Jesus. And now He has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. And in 1 John 5, he it says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Simply put, you will not live apart from Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. The Gospel isn't that good works and bad works win you or lose you eternal life. The, the, the Gospel is clear. You either accept the work of Christ on the cross and His redemption, His atonement for your sins, or you reject it. There's one sin that sends a person to hell. The rejection of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. If you accept Christ and His Word for salvation, you believe in faith upon Him and His work on the cross, that's salvation. That's life. And for you and I, eternal life actually began at the moment that Christ became our Savior and Lord. At the moment that we placed our trust in Him, eternal life began. If you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, I want today to be the day you do that. The first primary way that we set Christ as the authority of our life is when we come to Him on our knees, humbly um, in our hearts, admitting to God that we are broken, sinful creatures and that we need His salvation on the cross. That only He can save us. Now let me read to you just a few more verses here in John chapter 5, kind of continuing this story. John 5, picking up in verse 31. Jesus is talking about His testimony and He says, If I alone bear witness about Myself, My testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about Me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about Me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Last thing I'll say this morning about the authority of Christ is this. His testimony is powerfully credible. It's so powerfully credible that it is lock solid, shut it down, unpenetrable. It is perfect. The testimony about who Christ is is so well-rounded that there's no way around it. Witnesses were a very important thing in Christ's day. 
as they are now. Um, We no longer want to admit it, but so much of our civilized judicial system is still biblically based. With regard to witnesses, the Jews had a requirement. If if a, a man or a woman was accused of a wrong, there was requirements with regard to witnesses in order to prove testimony. And in Deuteronomy 19.15, we're told about these things in the law. We're told by God that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Jesus gives us like four or five witnesses here to who he is. The first witness that he talks about is John the Baptist. John the Baptist and his entire ministry was to point towards the Lamb of God. Remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, while he was a light, was a light pointing towards the saving light, Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes on to say, not just John the Baptist, but my works themselves are a witness, a testimony to who I am. There's so much power evidenced in the things that Christ did. Only God could do these things. Only God could raise Lazarus from the dead. Only God could feed 15,000 people at one time using two fish and five loaves of bread. Only God could stand in the bow of a boat and tell the storm to settle down. And placid seas and calm winds would prevail. Only God can do that. It's His works that prove to us who He is. But if that's not enough, He says, My Father, the Heavenly Father, is testifying on my account. And if that's not enough, He says, The Scriptures themselves testify to who I am. Did you hear what I said at the very end of that Scripture verse we read? It said, And Moses wrote about me. Could you imagine Jesus standing in the face of the Jews and the religious leaders? Their whole being was Moses. I mean, Moses was everything to them. And Jesus stands toe-to-toe, face-to-face with them, and He says, yeah, Moses wrote about me. Miraculously, He wasn't killed right at that very moment. That they wouldn't have stoned Him at that exact moment is amazing. Consider the beautiful story of the walk to Emmaus. Do you remember that? The end of the Gospel account, post-resurrection. Some disciples are making their way from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. And they encounter a stranger on the side of the road. And he begins to go back and forth with them. And it's you know just after the resurrection and the crucifixion and there's a lot of buzz still going around Jerusalem and they're talking to this guy and he's, and they're basically like, you know, how do you not know any of this stuff? Were you not here? And in Luke 24, we learn how this stranger began to walk them through the Old Testament, walk them through the Scriptures. And this is what it says in 24, verse 24. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose the same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I love how Jesus revealed himself to them there. First, the break, I mean, the breaking of the bread, you know. These disciples who were with him there when he broke bread that night before his uh, crucifixion, and uh, he breaks that bread, and in that very symbolic act, all of a sudden it just came rushing at them. I, I can't imagine what that would be like. Their eye, the blinders of their spiritual eyes had been just released in a split second like that. And all of a sudden, this man who's sitting in front of them is their risen Savior. And then it, and he's gone. Which is a really cool trick also. This is the bodily resurrected Christ who just like that, flesh, everything, gone. And they, they, the first thing they go to is they say, oh man, wasn't that great? When he walked us through the Scriptures and he showed us himself through the Word of God, how our hearts just burn. You want to you wanna draw nearer to Christ? You want to set Him at a higher place in your life? Go to the Word of God. Set your hearts and camp out in the Scriptures. If you ever feel distant from God, or you ever feel like you're wandering from God, or you just He seems unreachable at a point in time in your life, go to the Gospels and just meditate on Christ again. Get to know Him again. When your heart is breaking, when people are disappointing you, when you feel like you, you don't even have a, a church or, or a family to cling to, go to the Scriptures and find Christ. Set Him above everything else. Because I promise you, as you set Christ above everything else, everything else will take its order. Everything else will make more sense. All Scripture is inspired not to glorify itself or Moses or David or any other author. All Scripture exists to point to Christ and to elevate Christ. The last testimony that Jesus, I mean, we might as well throw it in here, talks of another. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's existence is to point people towards redemption in Christ, to seal people, to, to... to justify people through the work of Christ. In 1 John 5, we read this. John says, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. 
For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The Holy Spirit exists to testify to the greatness and saving power of Jesus Christ. You can't separate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I'll just say this in closing. The authority of Jesus is everything. There is no church without the authority of Christ. There is no healthy walk with Jesus without the authority of Christ. There is no forgiveness without the authority of Christ in our life. We will personally implode. The church will implode. Things will crumble in our life unless Jesus Christ is in the position of authority that He insists on being in our life. Um, author Jerry Bridges, he, he wrote um, something, a quote this week that I thought was very interesting and kind of put some of this in perspective for me. Just a one-sentence quote. He said, It's of little comfort to me to know that God loves me if He is not in control of the events of my life. You know what he's saying? What does it matter if Jesus loves me if He's not the authority of my life? And unless we as a people of God's Word continue to stand for this in this age where people are pushing back against Christ, pushing back against the Scriptures, pushing back against any semblance of moral and biblical integrity, I don't know if you've noticed that, but is the world, is darkness not pounding on our door continually? And as a church, one of our responsibilities is to stand for Christ preeminent. Christ crucified, Christ of the Scriptures, Christ of authority. That's part of what we do. And we do it in a, a spirit of grace, constantly reminding ourselves that the reason the world is dark is because they're without Christ. We stand, just like Jesus did, we stand for truth and the authority of Christ, and we also stand for His love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. I'm not saying that's easy, but Jesus never promised that it would be easy. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us. So unless we as a people of God continue to stand for the authority of Christ and affirm the biblical Word of God, the world is waiting in the wings to bring Christ down to something He's not. Jesus Christ is not my buddy. Jesus Christ is not my homie. He's not my friend. He's not simply my compadre. He's not my fix-it-everything. He's not my Santa Claus. Jesus Christ is my God. And God means sovereign. It means He's in charge. He's everything. We have to live that way. Otherwise, if we don't have that view, we are simply debasing the Gospel of Christ altogether. Let's not be that church. Let's be the church that affirms the truth of who Christ is because there's a slippery slope out there, folks. I don't know if you noticed it. The moment you give an inch on the Scriptures, the moment you give an inch on the authority of Christ, the moment you give an inch on what's a sin and what's not a sin, the whole thing begins to crumble. We must stand for truth and we must stand for the authority of Christ. Let's pray together.